I'm Jonathan Walsh here and welcome to round 22 of Don the Start. Uh, we've got the, the Port Adelaide Power this week uh, on our home deck, so looking forward to getting stuck into having a chat about that. But as always, I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Ian Hume. Humey, how are you, mate? How's the week been? Uh, week's been good. I mean, I, I had a great I had a great weekend. I, I think you did too. I mean, the Premier League started and both our teams had wins. You know, great, great start. Nothing else happened last <laughs> weekend, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good way to look. The only problem is when my Premier League team wins, you get upset and, and vice versa, given uh, I'm Arsenal and you're Tottenham. So it doesn't well, always work out that way. But yeah, I think the reality is, mate, uh, uh, our AFL team also had a... a a game on Sun or Saturday, sorry, and uh, and put up a pretty poor showing. So, uh, yeah, I think that's what we're here for. So, should we have a bit of a chat about how the Giants game unfolded? Yeah, let's let's get stuck into it. And as always, we'll start by going through the points from uh, the previous uh, previous preview that you you put forward. And so, the first one was to keep the six forwards in position. So, we've had problems in the past, such as in the first quarter against Collingwood. Uh, where we, we push our forwards up and then aren't able to make the connection between midfield and forward. And it's a problem we've had against GWS in the past. And given given their midfield strength, it was a temptation that we'd roll uh, extra bodies up to the contest to help with the stoppage and address uh, the contested ball challenge that we had against North. So obviously, you know, we, we won comfortably against North, but you, you, there was that... Uh, quite big disparity in contested ball and center clearances. And so the worry was that we would roll players up to make up for that. Uh, and Isaac Cumming was the halfback that we wanted to lock down on. And by pushing players up, you limit your ability to do that. And well, the coaches didn't listen uh, and they basically did the things you didn't want them to do there. So I guess if you just want to sort of go through that, because I think it was a big part of the reason why we weren't successful. Yeah, neither neither of those things happened really, did they? Uh, yeah, we sent out our half forwards, but put almost all of our forwards up the ground to try and choke up their midfield. Uh, you know, we we tried to use Hobbs and Snelling to give us extra man at the contest, uh, and then we really tried to slow down their ball movement by almost flooding the middle of the ground. And, and we regularly saw our midfielders and and forwards dropping back to help our defence, which you know, for all intents and purposes, would be a good thing, but. I think the the structure that Giants ran with to to hold a lot of our players just meant that our forwards in particular got sucked up right on right up the ground and we'll talk a little bit more about what we we thought the Giants did in a moment but I think it just ultimately made it really easy for them to set up in our forward 50 so so defend behind the ball and intercept the ball um and I I really think not keeping that forward structure has been a big problem for us throughout the year. I think when we've played that slow movement and really struggled to score, partly been because of, you know, earlier in the year, not having any real forwards in the side anyway, but that wasn't an excuse on, on Sunday or Saturday, sorry, because we pretty much had our first choice forward line. Uh, yeah. I just think we, we got caught out of position and just made it really easy for them. They had the 26 score launches for the game or scores for the game. And, and nine of those launches came from defenders. And it, it, Himmelberg had a game high with three. Uh, so he had the, the Stringer matchup. Cumming had two. Sam Taylor had two. So they were just able to, to get it on their own terms back there on the rare occasions we did go back. And I think that the main reason we only had the one inside 50 tackle was because 
we didn't get the ball in there very often. And when we did, we were um, we were just outnumbered. So yeah, Sam Taylor, who's one of the the really good fullbacks in the competition, had nine intercepts. Himmelberg six, and then Cummings and Haynes. Cummings, sorry, and Haynes had the four each. So. Yeah, that again just made it really easy for them because we didn't have the structure ahead of the ball to be able to do anything about it. Uh, and yeah, we were we were only only able to generate twelve one on ones in our forward half of the ground for the the entire match. So you know, on law of averages three three a quarter, and that's not anywhere near enough. And we only won the two of those. So uh, yeah, really poor showing. Uh, I think uh, I I think it was by design rather than our our forwards getting lost on the ground because we had, you know, three quarters to fix it after the first quarter and didn't, whereas the Collingwood game, I think, was probably a little bit more organic and, and they did address it in quarter time and, and were able to restore it. So, yeah, I think it was a, a pretty poor showing. And then, you know, Cumming didn't have a huge impact, but he still helped himself to 21 disposals and went at 81% efficiency. So he used them well. And we just got nothing at ground level either, did we? I think we only won 10 ground balls inside our forward 50 for the game, which is... I guess not a surprise given that they marked most of our entries, but of those, Hobbs had three and Guelphie had two. And so then, you know, the rest of our forwards shared five between them. So it was a pretty impotent performance, I thought, by our forwards and, and how they set up or were allowed to set up. Yeah, and just just sort of building on a couple of the things you, you said, uh, just firstly on, on the inside 50 tackles, it's actually been a, a, one of our key areas of strength in the second half of the season. We've upped from round 10 onwards... Uh, we were ranked first in that stat. We've, we've dropped a bit now with after a one one tackle performance, but it's one of those one of those things that hopefully is just a one off, and we, we see an improvement against Port. And I think the other thing that sort of uh, you made me think about was with the Collingwood game, they were six goals down at quarter time, and so they had to make the change. Whereas in the GWS game, they'd managed to get close back to parity, and so to the coaches, you would think they're they're, they're probably thinking that the the decision to move the forwards up the ground is actually working, and it, it's really it, we'll get to, we'll get to it a bit later. But it's really interesting how so much of the focus was on how GWS came out. It was really that ended up being nullified and was more about the second half. But we'll get to that a bit later. Moving on, uh, you wanted to leave Langford out of the midfield mix and, and keep him forward, and to try and get Hobbs and Perkins involved in the rotations. And that was really again another thing that didn't happen. So. You want to go through uh, what happened there? Yeah, I think this is almost the most disappointing part of of what happened for me. And I'm going to expand on this in a a little bit. But um, uh, I think Langford plays his best football as a forward or or on a wing. I I don't think he's a a centre bounce or the the big body contested midfielder. Some people think he might be. I think he's really poor below his knees and and I think he's really poor when the game's happening all around him. I think he gets lost in congestion. He's got a lot of other strings to his bow, but I, I really don't think contested footy uh, and and working in traffic is one of those below, and below his knees. Um, he, so, yeah, 15 centre bounce attendances for Langford and didn't win a clearance. Uh, the week before, he was in at 19 and only won the two. So over two games against, you know, two bottom four sides, albeit both of our oppositions have good midfields. What's that? He attended 34 centre bounces for just the two wins. So I don't think that's a, a good return. And I think what it does do is it, it costs us someone who's really good at helping set up 
a forward line and, and making sure that we keep structure. So I think it, it had a double impact. And then we really only used the four mids, you know, Langford being one of those, Merritt, Parrish and Stringer, the others. And for me, it just really brought back some really bad deja vu about game against Frio where their mids just ran over the top of us because they were fresher and they were rotating more, um, uh, you know, in the in the middle of the third quarter. And and this game was was really similar. Uh, Hobbs had one centre bounce attendance in the first quarter and one in the third quarter, and that was it for the game. And then Perkins attended three right at the end, and, and McGrath, when they finally made a move to to try and free Merritt up when it was too late, went in for two centre bounces. So uh, meanwhile, you know, GWS had five you know bigger body mids who were rotating through there on a consistent basis and they just had more petrol in the tank to to ultimately over outwork our mids and and um and get the game going their way hopper had a game high seven clearance and the most score involvements of of their midfielders so or their their sort of inside midfielders so he had a, a big impact and yeah we were at a loss to do much about it you know come halfway through that third quarter yeah, the, the Frio game is, is, is a pretty direct comparison. As you sort of say, we, we were both there at the Fremantle game and we just you would just see the Fremantle mids take it away at, at centre bounces halfway through that third quarter and, and Essendon players just couldn't keep up. And as you say, it was the same situation. And it's really clear just by looking at some other teams, like the, the top teams or the teams with the best midfields, they're really good at rotating those midfielders through and ensuring that they're not getting overworked and, you know, out of puff so that they can compete for longer. And I guess if, if you're going to look for ex- reasons why Hobbs and Perkins aren't there, you, you can make the argument that Hobbs, you know, first first season hasn't done a proper, you don't do a proper preseason in your, in your first year. It's probably just sort of getting through the rest of the year. And then Perkins obviously coming back from, from his injury is not uh, up to the speed he was prior to, prior to the game. But as you sort of say, you, you did have McGrath there and you had, small defenders that could he, he wasn't necessarily required down back and, and being able to rotate him through that centre bounce would have given you know you know yeah, or, given Parish and Merritt a bit more a bit more of a rest. Or or don't play them mate and bring in guys that, that can play and have an impact, you know, like uh, they're both big parts of our future and, and we want to get games into them. But if they can't play uh, play the roles that we want them to play and we're sacrificing other parts of the ground, just bring in some guys that can. So, mm-hmm. you know, we could have played D'Ambrosio as a halfback flanker and released McGrath into the midfield mm-hmm. instead of, you know, seeing Perkins hobble around and not really be able to have an impact. And, and he could have gone back and, and found some touch in the VFL and, and, and played down there and, and got some miles into his legs. Well, we don't, and again, it's something we'll talk about later. We don't have a lot of midfield depth, if any, in the VFL, but we, we still had some options that we could have used. So I think we, we just, we are, and I'm not letting our midfielders off the hook for, for not being good enough for long enough at all. But I do think that we, we missed a chance to to combat what was always going to be GWS's strength, their, their inside mids, by giving them an even chance by at least being able to go head-to-head, five-on-five. Five. And, and, you know, ultimately, five-on-four was always going to win out. When, when you do keep in mind that, you know, our inside mids, as they are, aren't, you know, Zach Merritt, well, Zach Merritt's not really an inside mid, but centre midfielder, um, you know, aren't nearly as big as some of the guys they were coming up against. Yeah, so I guess just more generally, like we we've talked a lot about since since that uh, first Sydney game 
how much how much further Essendon's come and, and the consistency of effort that's been there and the results, you know, haven't haven't always won every game, but you you couldn't say that there'd been a game as bad as, you know, the Freo game or the Geelong game at the start of the year since that second that since that first Sydney game. Let's as we keep comparing it to the Freo game, the, the GWS result, particularly the second half, is probably that the first game since since round nine that I think people would look at and go, well, that's a that's a pretty bad result. And does that, you know, does that sort of set set Essendon back where they are? And but I mean, just just sort of building on that a bit further, I think the talk all in the lead up was the way that McVeigh had spoken to his playing list, and definitely was obviously going to be getting them fired up to come out with aggression and I think a lot of the a lot of the talk this week has been about how Essendon didn't come to play and, and weren't able to stand up to that aggression but you know a lot of that a lot of that comes out in the first five or ten minutes of a game it's not something that necessarily lasts across the entirety of the four quarters and five minutes into the third quarter Essendon's well on top they've kicked two goals in a minute and you know looking like they can they can take control of the game and, and GWS has ran out of puff so what changes from that point and what do you put it down to? Is it, is it poor coaching set up or is it poor application from the coaching group? Yeah, I, I'm putting this one on the coaches rather than the players. And, you know, just to be clear, not excusing some of the, some of what the players did. And I'm also not making a, a statement here about our, our coaching group in general. I, I, th- I do think that coaches are, in a lot of ways, a bit like players, you know, they're capable of having a bad day. Uh, you know, we're, we're all capable of having a bad day at work as well. And, and I think coaching's no different to that. I think we seem to, to put them on a, on a bigger pedestal, but you know, I think so. I, I, this isn't a, a general statement about our coaches, but I, I definitely think it, it, they, they had a poor day um, on Saturday with, with the team they selected with the, the way they structured up and, and the way they, they went about it. I think, you know, you you mentioned to me or shared the comments that Guelphie made in post-match and, and how the coaches had prepared them for GWS coming out fired up. And I think it's easy to point to the end result and suggest that we weren't. But, you know, as you touched on, we were, we were two points down at quarter time and really Stringer lost his call in, in the first minute of the game and they kicked two in a row and they didn't score again until the 15-minute mark or didn't kick a goal again until the 15-minute mark in the first quarter. So, you know, they they got the first one. Coniglio was able to run forward unattended. That was bad by our midfield. And then they never should have got that second one. Stringer sees himself as a leader and should have just sucked it up and, and got back to his position. So, And then it took him another 15 minutes to kick a goal. So I think we, we sort of did a reasonable job of weathering the storm and kicked the last three of the quarter and, and had some momentum going into quarter time. Uh, but yeah, I just I just don't think our coaches gave our, as the game went on. I just don't think they they got some things right. Um, and I'll give myself a little bit of an out here. I obviously watched the game on the tally, and I don't know what's going on with the camera angles at the showgrounds um, up there, but they're pretty terrible. No one needs to see a super close up of the play unfold. But um, but yeah, I think. Seven-minute mark of the third quarter, Archie Perkins kicked a point that put us 10 points up. We, you know, that should have been a goal, and, and we should have gone out to 15 points. Um, but to that point in the game, Draper had rucked against two... You know, GWS went, went with two ruckmen, both two big bodies, really combative. And to that point in the game, Wright had only attended just one centre bounce. So Draper's a guy who we know is still building uh, his engine, building into to AFL football, and it's struggled to run games out. So 
we decided not to play two Ruckman. That's fine. That was the decision that we made. But to have Wright only attend one centre bounce to, you know, pretty much halfway through the third quarter of the game when we've got a guy who's known to fatigue against two big body Ruckman, I think is a, a big mistake. And, and that sits purely on the coach's shoulders. That's not something that that um, that sits on Draper or, or Peter Wright, I, I wouldn't think. And like we both mentioned, it's the same mistake we made in the Freo game and, and players, coaches, et cetera, will make mistakes. And um, they, we won the clearances in the first half, 18 to 10. So we were up by, oh, sorry, down by two points. The game is in the balance. Uh, they, they really dominated the, um, the clearances in the second half. So they won in the second half, 18 to 10. We were, we were up at half time. So, um, and have guys like Green, Ward, Coniglio, Hopper, Perryman running through there, all big and physical guys. And we just didn't learn, learn our lesson. And I I really do wonder where the trust has gone in, in Hobbs and Perkins. It might be, as you said, there's some signs of fatigue and they just want to get games into them, um, knowing that they're not up to, to play in midfield minutes. And if that is the case, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think... Um, uh, yeah, I, I do worry that under the heat of, of the moment where we thought we might have had a win uh, and an on, another opportunity to win the game, they they lost some faith in our young players and didn't expose them where they could have. And I mean, what what was the worst that, that could have happened? They could have gone in there and got touched up by these guys and, and got beaten by more experienced opponents. But you know what? We, our, our senior mids got beaten anyway. So at least they would have learnt and developed from it. So... Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of what went wrong on the weekend came down to not rotating our mids and allowing our forwards to get sucked up the ground and not really doing anything to combat those things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think probably the the first sign that you could tell that Essendon was was starting to lose lose the game was in that third quarter, particularly when Essendon just couldn't move the ball out of defensive 50 GWC kick a point or an Essendon player would take a uh, an intercept mark, and then the only options was to go long, uh, long down the line. And GWS, who had selected, uh, you know, quite a large side, were able to win the ball back from that, and prevented Essen from getting a clean exit that way. But how much of that is down to if, you, if your players are, are running and, and providing options, surely then you're able to work the ball out there. If you if your players aren't moving. Uh, not providing that effort, then you're forced to go long down the line, and that played into GWS's hands. Yeah, the problem when you when your forwards are all the way up the ground is they have to get back before they can come back at the kicker to to provide an option. Unless you get real fast movement and can sort of simulate that old Pagan's Paddy play where you get the ball over the back, but we don't really have the forwards who have got the speed to be able to do that anyway. So. Yeah, you you win the ball back, and then you need you're waiting for your forwards to get forward of the ball before they can come back. And by the time that happens, the opposition have set up the ground, and you're you're kicking to a contest. So, um, yeah, I, I think when you look back through the season, a lot of our issues with ball movement have come because we haven't played six forwards, and we've allowed out numbers ahead of the ball, and and we just lose any momentum anytime we go forward. But I think the other thing 
was that we really didn't handle what GWS threw at us, and I don't mean physically. I mean, uh, I mean tactically. They, you know, first things first. They they sent Perryman to Merritt and and locked him down and, and limited his ability to set us up by foot. You know, he's our he's our architect in the midfield. He's the one that uh, more often than not we want kicking the ball inside fifty. And if he does that enough times, he's going to find enough targets for us to kick a winning score. They locked down on Redmond and Hind, and it wasn't just that they. Uh, they put some defensive forwards on them and tried to to pressure them. They actually actively dragged them away from dangerous areas. So they they took them deep, particularly at stoppages, and made sure that they were away from the contest and weren't in a position to to influence and run and carry. So um, yeah, it, it sort of really different to the way that we've gone about it in the past, where we just had say Snelling sit on Dacos or we had Guelphie sit on Sinclair and and just limit their exposure. Or sorry, limit their effectiveness. They the Giants actually really did everything they could to drag those guys back and, and away from the contest. Then they used Kelly and Whitfield as their primary wingers. Whitfield has been playing a fair bit of wing this year, but they're their best two runners, their most dangerous users, and and they actually sacrificed Kelly in the midfield to be able to do that. And they just used them to work up and down the ground, uh, both offensively and defensively protect the switch so you know that's the other outlet when you're trying to get the ball off off half back is to try and get over the other side of the ground and switch play and you know they they ultimately just did it i thought sammy durham had a pretty good game um but yeah ultimately just worked over our wingers and and were way too effective for for heppel durham and you know martin etc um the other thing they were they really did was they had a big watch on the stringer matchup so himmelberg Picked him up when he went forward. A big body, you know. Stringer's sort of been getting medium-sized matchups lately, um, but they they went with a big side and and I think picked an extra key defender just so that they could get Himmelberg onto Stringer, uh, and and they were really switched on to that midfield switch, and and that meant that Stringer was, you know, he had he kicked three behinds I think, but his shots were all sort of from a fair way out, and he didn't have much of an impact. So. Yeah, they took all of our offensive weapons away. They had plans for, for each of them. And I think we just let the game flow for basically three and a half quarters. We, we ultimately switched Merritt to halfback and, and put McGrath into the the midfield. But it was sort of too late then. Um, and I think we were just sort of hoping for a little bit of uh, individual brilliance. I think, you know, Stringer to pop up and kick a couple or Merritt to, to find a way or... or uh, Peter Wright to clunk a few to get us through, and it, it just didn't it didn't happen, and and we didn't uh, we being our coaches didn't do anything to stop it. And I think the thing that really irks me is all of those guys, Essen players that we just spoke about, uh, are quite flexible, and we didn't do anything with that flexibility. Not once did we did our coaches ask a question of the Giants' coaches to to rethink their plans or change what they wanted to do. We just let them have it on their terms pretty much for the whole game and, and eventually that wore out. And, you know, just to throw a couple of, of examples, like what what would have happened if we had a moved Hind forward, Hobbs into the midfield, Merritt onto a wing and then moved Heppel to halfback? I know Heppel struggled down back at times this year, but he's not going to be exposed for pace by, you know, a Tanner Bruin or someone like that. Um, it then asks the Giants coaching staff a question, you know, what are they going to do with Perryman? Does he then follow Merritt to a wing? And if we do that, what do we then have to do with Whitfield or Kelly? And it, it changes their whole dynamic. And you don't have to do that for long. You can do it for five minutes. You can do it for half a quarter. And, and we just didn't pull the trigger on any of those 
those kind of things. You know, could we have, uh, you know, we could have pushed Durham back. He's played a bit there in the past. He was drafted as a halfback flank coach. Admittedly, we've found a really good position for him on the wing and, and released Redmond to a wing and seen what happened there. Could have put Merritt forward, um, given that we, we weren't getting any forward pressure. Merritt's someone who's really good at that. I, you know, we, we have some genuine flexibility in our side, but I think we just, yeah, sat back and, and hoped eventually someone through yeah, individual brains would be able to break the shackles and it just didn't happen. So, yeah, from a, from a tactical perspective, Matt, I, I, yeah, I was pretty disappointed with what I saw. Yeah, I mean, as I said, like, I've been pretty positive this, this second half of the year and I'm not going to let one game throw my positivity. I think every, every side has, has down games. I think you pointed out a couple of weeks ago, Melbourne had a game where they had no 450 tackles or, you know, the majority, particularly, we know we keep harping on this, but they're, they still are a young side. They're going to have down weeks. And, if, you know, you had a down week after 10 weeks of reasonably, reasonably consistent, you know, uh, effort-based performances. You're, you're not going to be too upset with that in, in the long run. But as you say, I mean, it's really, really important for the coaches to respond. You sort of say the coaches to respond this week with their with their decisions and, and how they react to this game, both tactically and as also getting getting the players up for it. Because, yeah, I think you would if you had you had a repeat of that level of effort and, and that tactical performance, you would you would have a lot more concerns uh, heading into next year. Yeah, I mean, they were GWS were eighteen games more experience per player than we were so you know that's almost a full season if we fast track and think what sort of player Ben Hogs might be with another season under his belt Perkins might be you know these young guys that are coming through Zerk Thatcher who's just finding his feet now put another 20 games into him and what might he look like so yeah we we are a younger side but I think um, yeah I, I go back to the comment that Mason Redmond made a number of weeks ago that that we've got a young senior coach as well or an experienced one and he's learning and developing too. So I, I'm like you, I'm still positive about what they're doing and, and what we're, we're capable of. I think they had a bad day and I would hope that, that they learn from it and we, we're better for it going forward. Absolutely. Well, moving on to the news, news section and as it's the end of the season and we're not going to be playing finals, it's all about who, who teams are connected with. We did talk about Heppel last week and I've, even with the rumours of the expanded Gold Coast offer, I don't think there's much more that we, we have to add on that. But we were, Essendon were connected to Sam Zerha, who obviously played quite well against us uh, the week before. And I think he's, he's quite a quite a good player. Obviously a bit inconsistent, but he's kicked over 30 goals this year, which is in in that North Melbourne side is a fair effort. Uh what are your thoughts on on the potentially approaching Cam Zerha as a as a trade target? Yeah, I I really like him. I think he's a, a really, really good player and, and he's improving a lot. I, I love his bravado and his energy. He's strong. He's hard. Uh, I just don't see that you can play him, Stringer and Langford in the one forward line. I, I think it, it, I, I just don't see how that works. Um and for that reason, I'd, I'd stay away. You know, we're committed to Stringer. He's got a, a new contract. We signed Langford for four years last year. Um, and I think both of them are probably going to continue to spend more time forward. So, yeah, I, I just think we've got more pressing needs in terms of adding midfield depth and, you know, a, a probably more so a small forward ground level players than, than a medium-sized one, albeit a very, very good one. 
Absolutely. As, as always at this time of year, you've got to take a lot of these these stories as with a grain of salt. You know, most of them come from the player managers trying to get more money for their for their client, which you know that's that's their job and that's what they're meant to do. But it does, you know, I think trade trade periods almost as as big as a regular season for some people. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how much to read into this at this stage. But yeah, so look. Uh, a fair few audience questions this week. So we're going to spend a bit of time on that. As always, if you want to participate, uh, chuck your hand up in the chat and we'll, and we'll get you on. Uh, but you had a few people ask you questions through Twitter. So uh, a couple of people, Dan, Dan Bomber and Peter Charles, asked about how we can go about uh, improving our clearance work besides just bringing Shield back. I think I think it's, it's pretty clear based, if you go stats-wise, our centre clearance work in the last couple of weeks is, is a real strength of Essendon. But there's obviously the stoppage clearances that is consistently down on. What are your thoughts based on that question? Yeah, I, th- I think there's two things. There's there's what can we do in the last two games to have a look at things, and then what do we need to do long term to address it? I, I think we've got a big problem with the age demographic or, or balance of our midfield. Shields 29. He'll start next year a 30 year old, and. Stringer, uh, who starts in the midfield but goes forward, is 28. Then we're uh, Zach Merritt, 26. And then uh, we're down to Parrish, who's 25. So we've got two two genuine mids in Sheil and Merritt that are 26 plus. Parrish, a 25-year-old with 130 games. Then we're down to Caldwell, who's played 32 games and improving and, and looks like he's going to be a real good player. I think he's still only 21. An 18-year-old in Ben Hobbs with 16 games and, and Archie Perk. Perkins at 20, who's who's played 37 games and most of those as a forward. So um, so we, we drop off quite substantially and, it, and it, it's, it's no surprise really that you take a Shield out and you take a, a, a you know Parish or a Caldwell more recently out and it does really drop away. And, and you know, I left Langford out of that because I think he does play his best footy as a forward and I've left, you know, Martin and Durham, et cetera, out, although they're young guys as well, but the wingers I've left out of that. So I think in the next two weeks, we need to make sure we use all our mids. We need to be, I think, you know, we've both talked about this, rotating a minimum of five midfielders through there um, to, to help address the predictability of what we've been doing, uh, you know, lately. Opposition teams will know that Merritt's not going to be the person we're going to hit to because he's not the contested ball winner. So if we've got Stringer and Merritt and Langford in there, they're going to know that the direction of the hit's going to be Stringer. So I think we need to use Hobbs as the contested midfielder. We need to look at Perkins more and and remove some of the predictability. It can't just be Draper jumps, hits to Stringer, ham, either bursts through or handballs to Merritt and, and we move forward. I think we need to to get some, yeah, some different options in there. Um, and I'd also be having a look at Martin for some bursts in there. I think he's really clean at, at ground level. We know how good a user is. He's also 190 centimetres and 86 kilos. So he looks he looks thin, but He's deceptively strong and, and he's got some height about him. So I think I'd like to see him go in for, you know, three or four a game just to see what he might be able to add in there going forward. And then beyond that, I think we need to really address it at the draft and the trade period. We need more midfielders on our list. Uh, I think it's a it's a big hole. Um, you, you know, Dylan Schill, as I mentioned, starts next year as a 30-year-old. And he's not done. I think he's still got some good footy ahead of him, but he could be done when we're contending. And he's such an important player in our midfield. We need to find our next Dylan Shield. I don't think that player is on our list at the moment. So, so yeah, twofold for me. Remove predictability 
get some other options there, have a look at some of the young guys and then really address it in the draft and trade period. Absolutely. All right, moving on. Uh, Papa Rosea asked what we can do to counter what we saw on the weekend Weekend with Redmond getting tagged. So you made the point that uh, GWS really put a lot of work into him, obviously given given the exceptional year that he's had. How do you, how do you deal with that? You sort of suggested earlier, you know, moving him up to a wing. What would you in in that game game situation? What would what would you be doing in that in that situation? Yeah, I I think there's there's two parts to this, right? Um, I think late in the game, you know, late Q three, start of Q four, it's something that we could have done to break things up because we hadn't been able to work through it uh, on the ground. But I think correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I reckon that's the first time we've really seen a team lock down hard on Redmond. So. The first thing I'd be saying to him as a coach would be, you know, well done, mate. Feather in your cap. Opposition clubs are, are really rating what you're doing and, and you've been playing brilliant football. So you've now become a target. And the challenge on you is to now elevate your game to another level and work through it. So that would be my first challenge to him if he gets gets that again this week is, is mate, go and work really, really hard and find a way. Uh, I wouldn't be instinctively just going to move into another position from the start of the game if he cops a tag again. Um, but the other thing that I would have been addressing during the week is I would have been talking to his other defenders on how they can organise themselves better, particularly at defensive stoppages if he's getting dragged away uh, from being that that run outlet, um, you know, if, if we do win stoppage. So, you know, could he hand over to Jake Kelly? Could he hand over to McGrath? to get himself closer to the action. So I think we need to look at how we organise that through there. So, yeah, I think for the remainder of the year, I wouldn't be moving him too far away. Um, obviously, there's only two games to go unless it was late in a game and, and we needed something from him. But I'd be using this as an opportunity to coach him on how to work through it because we know it's going to happen more and more next year. So this is the, you know, two games to go, they don't mean anything. Best to try and work through it now rather than waiting till next year. Yeah, it'll be interesting this weekend to see how, how Port react because they've, they've obviously got the template of what GWS did, whether they do a similar thing with with Redmond and try to do that. And then, obviously, if they do try and do that, it'll be interesting to see how much work the coaches have put into it to see whether whether they are able to work through that and, and still get him to be that damaging player. Uh, Matt Brown asked, if there any players we should try in the last two games? I know I, on Twitter I was trying to get the Tom Hurd train going. I thought... Uh, one one thing he has over Menzi, and I know people would be disappointed that Menzi wasn't selected either, was that uh, Tom Hurd does does tackle a lot more than Menzi. It's probably the area of Menzi that I'm most concerned about uh, going forward that he needs to work on. And I thought with Snelling out as as that in that pressure forward role, albeit not playing at that that right level, you know, if Tom Hurd was ever going to get a game, it would be him. But that that doesn't look likely. Is there anyone else you thought should have been tried in these last two games? I, I'm not in a desperate rush, mate, to see to see anyone else. I would have liked to have seen a bit more of Menzi because I, I'm pretty sure we only drafted him on a six month contract. So it, unless they've already, you know, they're planning to extend him or get rid of him, regardless if they've already made that decision, uh, then yeah, I guess there's there's not a whole rush to get him in there. Um, the the other one I, I wouldn't mind seeing this week, given that he's been picked in the twenty five or twenty six or whatever it is, is Dan Brosio as a forward. Given Snelling's out, he he might go there. He's played a bit there in the VFL. You know, I, I, 
looking forward to seeing Patrick Voss play, but we've re-signed him. We know he's going to be there. I think he's got an opportunity to to get himself really fit and, and break into the side next year. I think we've done a pretty good job this year of getting games into to young guys for the most part. So, yeah, I'm, I'm – and, you know, there's there's lots of young guys playing anyway. You know, Durham will be playing. Hobbs will be playing. Um, Perkins Martin. will be playing. Martin. Martin will be playing. Yeah, so there's still plenty of youth on show, mate. Dirk Thatcher's only played 30-odd games, I think. So, um, you know, Draper's still a, a pretty inexperienced guy as well. So th- there's plenty of youth out there, mate. I, I think we've, you know, near enough got the balance right. Fantastic. And then, so final final question, actually from two people who are listening live to us, hello, JR and Vince. They both asked about work rate and, and why we tend to get up and downs. And I think we, we sort of partly addressed it uh, earlier in the show, but just some final thoughts on on that idea about, about work rate and, you know, the the changes in, in how the team, the t- changes in the team output, I guess. Yeah, I... I know not everyone agrees with this and, and this is fine. I I have put a line through what happened uh, in, in the first nine weeks of the year. I, not excusing it or forgetting it. It, it was horrendous. But I, I can see a huge difference in the team since round 10 um, through to there. So I, I know when we have a result like we did on the weekend instinctively, it's quite it's quite easy to attach that to what happened earlier in the year. And it's also quite easy to attach it to what's happened for the last, you know, decade and a half or so. Um, but this is a young group and I do think we're seeing some really positive signs in how we're going about things. I just think it is par for the course that all teams will have a, a down week throughout a, a period of time. You mentioned Melbourne earlier. I think this year, you know, besides Geelong and, and you know, they got smashed in round two, um, against the Swans up at the SCG, probably because they had such a soft kill against us the week before. They might have forgotten what uh, contested footy was like. But, um, yeah, I, I do think for for sort of 10 weeks or so, our levels of effort, even though we had some some losses in that period and some poor ones in that, I think it, it wasn't because of a lack of effort. I think our effort levels were, were quite strong and, and we did have a down week. But I also think that... Uh, there was elements of, of what the coaches did that didn't allow um, allow us to get the best out of our playing group. So I guess, you know, we see what happens this week, don't we? Do we? Is it a, a one-off, you know, sort of post-buy or is it, you know, how we're going to play out the rest of the season? I hope we, were strong, we respond strongly. Yeah. Well, moving moving on to this, this week then and, and starting to look at the Port game, obviously a game going back to the Sunday games and so we're, we're back to the good old extended bench and, and not knowing the exact side. But uh, for Essendon this week, Inns are Shield, Cutler, Ryan, Caldwell and Reed, and then D'Ambrosio has also been named. It was the unused sub last week. Uh, Jones uh, out omitted and Snelling with a hamstring. And I think Shield is still subject to fitness. I think he, he's got to get through training on Friday before they confirm they lock him in. Uh, I, I guess my, my first thought there is that as much as we, we all see Jones as, as a best 22 player and, and a real you know, future, future key player for the club, you know, the last, he's been struggling for a couple. He's been struggling since he came back, and the last game was was very poor. Uh, you know, up, up to that point, he managed to kick a goal in every game, other than one uh, in in the games that he'd been back in for. And, and that that last game, you know, he was he was barely sighted. 
I think, you know, overall, given where he, where he started the season from, we got 10 games into him this season. 10 more games where he's playing with Peter Wright, 10, 10 more AFL experiences for him. The fact the fact that they've left him out for, for this game and potentially for, for the last game of the season, you know, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing for him. It, it, it sort of does let him know that he still needs to meet certain standards uh, to be picked in the side, even, even if we are in, you know, the dead end of the season. And the other sort of point there is if Shield does get up, we could have our full first choice midfield and, and we could really see how that the rotation of those players uh, works up against again you know a side with a, with a really good midfield of, of wines and Voke and, and Rosie and and those types there yeah I look I think I think it's fair enough um, on the Jones piece I think you've summed it up pretty well he's a player that that I'm a big fan of and and really like and I think he's going to have a really good career but you know, most players get dropped throughout their career. And uh, I think he's also going to be one of those guys who, who needs surgery as soon as the season's done as well. I think he's been carrying a foot injury that hasn't allowed him to, to train or, or play um, at his best. So I think, um, again, though, he's as his career goes on, he's going to have more and more of that. He's going to need to find a way. So, yeah, I think you're right. We got 10 games out of him. In most of those, he was all but two of those. He was able to hit the scoreboard. And I think in five or six of them, he, he kicked multiple goals. So, yeah, the, the signs are there that he's going to be a really good player. And, yes, yeah, statement made, go back and work harder. What you delivered last week wasn't good enough. And we go from there, but I'm not going to even try and guess what the team might be, mate. I, I've got no idea. Um, yeah, yeah I, guess, it's... I guess Sheil and Caldwell being fit uh, is going to play a big part. And then, yeah, do we play the two Ruckman and, and bring Brian in or or do we, do we ruck Stewart against... Um, Finlayson, yeah, I'm, I'm really not sure. Does D'Ambrosio come in and play forward? Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. It would be complete guess, mate. Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at the extended bench and I think other, you know, Ridley and Ridley and Langford are, are, and, and Caldwell, if, if you see they're probably locks for there. And then you, you're trying to pick one player from Reed, Hobbs uh, and Brian probably, I, I would say, out of or D'Ambrosio as well. I think Cutler's probably the the one player that probably doesn't get picked from, from that, even though he's, he's had really good VFL form. Ah, it's, it's going to be some difficult choices there. And as you say, it will come down a lot to how they think Port Adelaide's going to line up, which we'll get into because uh, they've made some interesting selections as well. So they've got, uh, they've gone quite tall uh, in the forward line with Georgiades and Marshall coming back to join Dixon. Uh, they've also named, and they've been named on the ground. Uh, they've also got uh, Jackson Mead, uh, Trent Dumont and Ollie Lord, who's who's listed as a debut, but given that Port Adelaide didn't do any of those uh, announcement videos or the, the phone calls to mum uh, videos, I'm not sure that he's necessarily going to be playing, but he's a 195-centimetre uh, tall forward and kicked 10 goals in 19 Sandfell games. So not necessarily going to be bringing him in, but it does look like they've gone tall in the forward line. And out is Tickle, who's been their, their ruckman along with Finlayson. And Gray. So, as I said, they've gone with the tall forward line and they're running with Finlayson as the number one ruck. You'd imagine a Marshall is probably um, their backup ruck there. Uh, Finlayson's actually been, I think the stat I've seen, he's been the most effective ruck in the last few weeks, uh, even though that's not really his his main role or why they would have got him over. So, interesting to see how he goes up against Draper. Uh, Any other thoughts on Port from what you see? Uh, no, not really, Matt. I think, yeah, you're, you're right. The, the probably trying to 
to emulate to an extent what GWS did last week with their three tall forwards and, and trying to do something similar. Um, Ollie Lord is a is a Melbourne kid, isn't he? He was a Sandringham Dragons boy, so I guess his family they're in Melbourne, so they they can delay that decision, I guess, and still have the family here if he is going to play. Um, and then, yeah, Jed McKenty is the other sort of young name on their um, on their bench um, who people might not have seen. He's, he was their mid-season draft pick last year. Um, so, yeah, 176 centimetres, sort of forward midfield, can win his own ball, pretty clever around goals. He's, he's played the seven games. So, yeah, I, I, I was relieved to see Robbie Gray um, omitted purely from a win-loss perspective, but also the football purist in me was disappointed to, you know, we might not see him again um, play against Essendon. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I was a little bit torn. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, let's let's get stuck into Port, and obviously we've we've talked about Port previously oh, in the last game before the bye, and just sort of reflecting on that game it was it was a real real slog at the start of the game for Essendon. Then he kicked a goal till halfway through the second quarter, and Port actually got out to a thirty eight point lead. And then in the in the third quarter in particular, Essendon got on a run, really got on top at centre bounce, uh, were able to kick um, five goals in a row to bring it back to that eight point margin. And then the game just sort of fizzled out from there. It wasn't a goal kicked in the last quarter. Uh, Port ended up winning by by sixteen points, and it just seemed like it was it was a bit drizzly. And both teams had, you know, both teams had sort of run out of puff because both teams were actually headed into their bye, so they just sort of played out a nil all draw in the last last quarter, leaving Port winning. And then the game was one of those games in that sort of that period where we were just wanting to see effort, and and we got that. And if you look at the stats from the, that game, Essendon was able to generate eight more inside fifties, but probably the key difference in, in terms of not winning the game was the the forward efficiency. So Essendon was six percent down on forward efficiency compared to Port. And then again, a lot of a lot of the things we've talked about where Essendon dominates at centre clearance, but loses the stoppage clearance pays out there with uh, Essendon up ten centre clearances, but down uh, eight stoppage clearances. So again, something that consistently uh, seems to happen with Essendon and stoppage clearance being a, a key for Port, which we'll get into. Uh, and so since round since round 11, uh, Port have actually gone three and six. So they obviously had the, the five losses at the start of the year. They went on a bit of a streak and people were starting to talk about them making the finals again, but they, they've had quite a difficult run in the last nine games. So they've, they've had wins over Sydney, uh, the Suns and the Giants. So obviously the, the Sydney wins quite a, especially a good one. We, we had a win over Sydney as well. Uh, but their losses have been to Richmond twice, uh, Frio, Melbourne, Geelong, and Collingwood. So they've, they've lost to teams within the eight. So they're probably a, a fair reflection of where they where they are in terms of their ladder position and, and the losses that they've had there. But even then, the losses that they've had, they've all been competitive losses. So prior to the, the previous Richmond, the last Richmond game, you know, all those losses against those top eight sides had been in the 12 points range. So they were quite, they were quite competitive against against top sides. So, again, something something to think about going into the weekend. And they haven't actually played at Marvel Stadium this year, so that, you know, you would expect that that would be a, a benefit for Essendon. But if you, you look at their results from, from last year, they went they went 4-0. So, uh, with, with a fairly similar list to last year, they're, they're not going to be phased by playing undercover. So, if you look at, again, if you look at their stats uh, since round 10, because that's when we've got our, our data uh, checked off from, uh, and that, that pretty much lines up with the last game we played. Their key, their key strengths have been their stoppage clearance differential. So they're third 
in that from round 10. Uh, and that leads into a lot of their, the rest of their play. So they, they control around stoppage and that leads them to getting uh, uncontested possession, which is they have the first differential since round 10. Uh, Mark's differential, which is the second. And then third for tackle, tackle differential, although Essen is actually first in that stat since round 10. The things to consider and things that potentially could uh, Essendon could try to exploit is their effectiveness inside 50. They're, they're at 45.6%, uh, which is the fourth worst in the competition in terms of going forward, and the centre clearance differential, which is the sixth worst. So they, that really gives, from my view, that really gives Essendon uh, two, two clear points where they, they can generate scores from, which is going to be centre clearance and from rebounding off halfback, intercepting the ball, and uh, Port are actually 11th for intercept differential. So they, they give away more intercepts, possessions, than they, they are able to generate themselves. So I think there's, as I said, I think there's two, two key areas where Essendon can potentially win this game. And that's by winning center clearances and generating scores from that. And then if they don't do that, being able to uh, take the ball from halfback and move the ball up, kind of like what happened in the, in the North Melbourne game. So I think there's two areas where Essendon can gain an advantage against Port. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think you've summarised it pretty well, mate. I had a good look at them uh, on the weekend against Richmond and, and then also watched their game with a, a mate of uh, yours and mine who's a, a, a staunch Magpie supporter uh, the week before. So, um, yeah, they, they have been really competitive. And, and even last week, they... You know, with it was a two-point ball game late in the second quarter. Bolt, uh, Shea Bolton kicked a goal, sort of right on half time, and and gave the Tigers the momentum. And and then even sort of halfway through that third, it was only a couple of goals of difference before Richmond eventually kicked away. Um, and then yeah, you know, the week before they they ran you know, like most teams seem to be doing, um, ran Collingwood to to six points. So um, so yeah, they they have been in the game. I think there's three three key themes for me this week. Um, that we really need to bring the heat inside 50. Um, two reasons for this. One, we need to atone for, for last week, you know, having one inside 50 despite the challenges that we spoke about with the way that we set up the ground um, just isn't good enough. We were we went into that game as the, the number one for inside 50 tackles per game since round 10 and, and off the back of that dropped to six. So uh, we need to atone for that. But over the last month, Port ranked 18th for points scored per game from the you know, chains that start in their back half um, and or in their defensive 50 and they, they're averaging less than four points a game um, so yeah they're, they're really not able to generate scores from there so we don't we don't want to give a sucker an even break and allow them to start to do that but they also average nearly 11 ineffective kicks per game in their back 50 and and that's the the most in the AFL so you know the the, the worst um, ball users in their back half so um, I, I really think it's an opportunity for us to put a lot of pressure on them create turnover in our own half and if you do think back to that that last game we played against Paul granted it was in the wet and we're not going to see that with um, with a roof over our heads on Sunday but the ball was camped in our forward 50 for most of the second half. And, and for a lot of that last quarter, we were able to get repeat inside 50s. We just weren't able to get score on the board. Um, but we were able to put a lot of pressure on them. Um, last week against Richmond, they exited their defensive 50 49 times and only went inside 50 from six of those. And we know we've had challenges defending transition. 
this is a team that we should be able to do that against. Um, and yeah, in our in our last two wins, we've averaged um, or we've had sixteen inside fifty tackles, so four a quarter. Um, yeah, number one in the competition averages thirteen a game. So yeah, that's the benchmark for us this week. It's the barometer when we've played well, and I think it exposes a real weakness in how Port have been playing. So real big watch on on inside fifty tackles this week. Um, I think we need to plan for Drew to go to to Zach Merritt and. A bit like what I said earlier about Redmond. Firstly, let's back Zach to beat him, but give him some help. Um, you know, put on some blocks, work with him. Don't just allow it to peter out. But then if it doesn't, if Zach's not able to get on top, we need to have a plan B and, and what we're going to do and pull the trigger on that earlier. And it can just be, it, it doesn't have to be a, a change for the whole game. You know, a five-minute burst in another position might be enough to to change things. So, I'd be sending him to half forward and telling him to go and play on Ryan Burton and just focus on on tackling and pressure. And, and we should be able to do that if Shield and Caldwell are both playing. We'll have the midfield depth within our side to be able to do that. Burton's fifth for intercepts for them, fourth for score launches. So, yeah, let's give him something else to worry about and change how Port want to go about things. And then last but not least, um, you know, Port, as you mentioned, are a high disposal team. They're fifth for kicks, fifth for handballs, third for disposals in the AFL. And, and like you mentioned, that all comes from from their clearances. They're fifth in the comfort for overall clearances, but most of that comes from stoppage. So we have to get that right this week. We have to get it right without committing extra numbers from our half-forward line because that's just going to allow Port to turn their weakness into a strength if we give them extra numbers in their back half. So... Yeah, we have to take that away. And if we can do that, it takes away their kick and mark um, control possession game. And um, and it allows us to expose the areas that they're weak in being, you know, rebound and using the ball from the back half. So, uh, and if Caldwell is up and he does play, mate, he goes to Boke. He's their, their number one for them in clearances, both in the centre and comfortably at stoppage. Uh, and he's third for score launches, number one for goal assists for them, which, you know, it's uncommon to see a midfielder actually like a contested midfielder being number one for goal assist. So it just shows the impact that he does have on on their ability to go forward. Mm, and I mean, doing our review this week on the GWS game, we would we talked about how none of the, the things we, we thought could happen did. So hopefully next week when we're, we're doing our final uh, preview show for the year, we're going to have a few more times where things actually did work out as, as we planned. And, you know, it's actually worth listening to, what we have to say rather than, you know, the coaches, the team going the, the opposite direction. Uh, I guess moving on to the, to the final thought, uh, obviously Essendon's copped a bit of stick for their effort this week, but Port haven't exactly had a quiet week either. The, the coaches are a bit under pressure um, from, from the president. And yeah, so that, that seems to be a fairly regular occurrence with, with David Kosh, but out of the two sides, what is with a team that most seems to win is who? based on your opinion? I think Ken Hinckley probably needs to win the most if you believe the outside side noise, but we need to play well. I, I think, I don't want to see an honourable loss, but I think if we if we do play well and, and we address some of the things that went wrong last week and, and we can see some of our young players really step up and, and get some more midfield time and, and play bigger roles, then I think for where we are in terms of our season and, and going forward, then... I'm kind of okay with that. Lose by playing the right way if we have to. I don't think a loss uh, is a you know a, 
a knock on Bet Rutten necessarily. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I agree. I, that was that was my thought that Port Port need a win uh, after what the chairman the chairman has said. Uh, Essendon need a need a strong performance, and hopefully that strong performance leads to a win. But as long as as long as the signs are there, you know, I won't I won't be happy, but I'll, there'll be some level of content contentedness there. Yes, but I'm mate. I agree. Yeah, well, look, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. I just want to give a big shout out to everyone who asked a question tonight. Uh, really appreciated that. Actually, helps uh, get us to the get us get us uh, through a bit of a, a content drought today. We're actually a bit worried we weren't going to, you know, have a have a decent length show at, at some stage this week. So, really appreciate everyone who's who's asked a question. Uh, in the process of planning our postseason stuff, and, and one of our shows will be a Q and A uh, listener question episode where we go through that. So if you've got any you know questions that you feel are more appropriate for a postseason sort of situation, and you want to get those in early, uh, hit us up on on Twitter. You can DM us, or you you can uh, you can quote us directly in one of your tweets. So do that. And so again, want to give a big shout out to everyone who's who's listening live. We really appreciate the fact that. Uh, not only do people want to are happy to listen to us uh, speak in this environment, but you know the people are sticking around and, and spending an hour with us. We really do appreciate it. Um, I think we say it every week. Uh, so hopefully you're not getting sick of hearing us talk about how much we appreciate you guys. But you, uh, as long as you keep sticking around uh, and in the numbers you are, we, we keep doing it. So yeah. Yes, what I mate, it's been it's been great. Even even though we we lost on the weekend, the interactions have been brilliant. Thanks to everyone who's listened in, and um, yeah, uh, and and those that listen through their podcast app as well. It's uh, it's yeah, really appreciate the feedback. It's been great. So hopefully we can get out there and, and get a win against Port. They're a, a team that I don't particularly like. Um, so it'll be nice to get one. I feel like I've got bad memories of being spat on by Port fans as we exited the the game at Football Park after the the 2002 uh, semi final loss. So uh, yeah, hopefully we can get one up on them. Well, fingers crossed. No, and to any the Essendon fans listening to that, no uh, no retaliatory. Um, we're, we're, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that certainly wasn't a directive for payback, <laughs> mate. Um, yeah, let, let's be the bigger people. But yeah, um, it was an interesting place, Footy Park, back in the day. We're definitely a classier lot than than those supporters. Go on. Cheers, mate. Catch ya.